Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich, and I'm the other co-lead pastor here. And it is um, it is a privilege to be here with you. It's a privilege to worship with you. And um, I just want to say thank you uh, to our worship team for leading us this morning. They lead us every morning, and it's always um, a great blessing. But uh, I just want to say thank you for leading us with your honesty. You're not behind me, so I'm. <laughs> thanks for leaving me here. Uh, <laughs> Always good. Um, as you arrived, you should have received a bulletin, and inside there is something called a connection card. Greg already mentioned that. If uh, you did not get one of those, if you would raise your hand, we'll make sure you get one of those. So make sure you raise your hand. Anyone? Everyone's got one? Magical. Okay. Um, and I also want to point out in your bulletin on the inside right, there's a blank space there, and that is designed for you to use for jotting down questions, notes, verses, uh, doodling, whatever you need to do to keep engaged in this morning's teaching, it is there for you. And um, for those who are living, listening online, uh, thank you for joining us. I encourage you to grab some paper as well. Today, we are diving into week two of our new sermon series entitled, Sermon on the Mount, and for some reason the image is not showing up, so imagine this nice image that looks very similar to what's on your bulletin on the cover. Um, Oh, there it is. Um, We uh, started this series last week, and if you missed last week, uh, Greg introduced our sermon series, and he did a fantastic job, and I highly recommend you going back to listening to it because... um, It kind of lays the foundation. Today we'll touch on some of that as well. But the Sermon on the Mount uh, is considered by many to be Jesus' most powerful and challenging sermon ever. And with that, I want to echo something Greg said last week, and that is, as we dive into this series, I think it's going to be an amazing summer of learning because this text, I believe, is going to press us. It's going to challenge us and pull us and invite us and confront us and direct us in ways that is going to go against everything we really think and believe and even how we live, which in some ways that's scary, right? And why is that? Why does this sermon do that? Well, it's because this is Jesus speaking to us. He's painting a picture, if you will, of what it looks like to be citizens and active participants in the very kingdom of God. And each week we're going to find that um, the sermons that we look at, these words, are going to be touching on these dimensions relationally, particularly how we see, understand, experience, and respond to God, ourself, and others. And what that means is by the very nature of this sermon and the person teaching it, there's no way you're going to be able to walk away not being challenged in some form or fashion. And so as Greg said last week, uh, buckle up which I love. Um, Before we start, though, let me open us in prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, we, uh, we thank you that you are present here in our midst. Thank you as we pause and even take a breath, we recognize you are as close as the very breath that we breathe. No matter what it is we're going through, we give you thanks. And God, we ask as we look at your word today, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal your truth to us and and where we need to be challenged, you would challenge, and where we need to be encouraged, you would encourage, and where we need to be supported and lifted up, that you would do so, and and just even where we need to be rethinking things, where we are being challenged in the way we think, help us to see how it is you're doing so, and give us 
strength and faith and courage to live out the things you're calling us to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, if you could please open it up to Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1. If you don't, um, don't worry, you don't have to go there yet, um, but I will kind of lead us where, and if you don't have your Bible, you can follow along as the text will be behind me. Um, Before we get started, though, I want to do a quick review, Um, get us some context. In the chapter before ours, we see Jesus led by the Holy Spirit into 40 days of fasting and temptation. This is a crazy time in the wilderness, and it's all part of his preparation for ministry. And it's out of this time that Jesus starts preaching this idea to repent for the kingdom of God is near. And immediately as he starts doing this, people hear his words and are drawn towards him. He starts then calling his first disciples in chapter 4. And if you remember, these people are not the cream of the crop. In fact, we might say they're the exact opposite of what any rabbi would be looking for with regards to his students or his disciples. And so Jesus in chapter 4 is preaching this. He continues to teach and proclaim this good news. And then he starts healing people as well. And as it says in Matthew 4, 23 through 25, it says Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Verse 25 says, large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Amazing. So this news of Jesus is spreading like crazy, and there's these large crowds all over the region who are now following him. And I underlined or highlighted those words because that words there, followed him, are the same words that describe the actions of the disciples responding to Jesus' invitation to be his disciples. If you remember, they dropped their nets and immediately followed him. This is the same response of these crowds of people from all over the region. They begin to follow Jesus. Now, as Greg taught us last week, this crowd is really important for us to remember. And the main thing we need to remember is how diverse it was. And Greg did this great job with maps and all these things. But it's not just that they're diverse in the regions that they're coming from. This crowd that's now starting to follow Jesus represents different backgrounds, different genders, different cultures, different faiths, beliefs, customs, education, financial standings. And it also includes those who would be considered clean and unclean of the day. So it's this crazy, diverse crowd that begins to follow Jesus in some form or fashion. They are captivated and interested in what Jesus has to say, what he does, how he acts, how he thinks, and how Jesus responds and lives his day-to-day life. Now, this term, follow, in the Greek is the word akulatheo, which is a cool word. Try and say that, akulatheo. Eh, we'll call it, okay? And, uh, and what that means is to join one as a disciple, to become or be a disciple, to side with one's party, to cleave steadfastly to one, to confirm wholly to one's example in living, and if need be, in dying. 
So you can imagine these crowds are seeing what Jesus is doing, and they're, they're, they're trying to decide, is this the person I want to commit to following fully? Because this is a serious commitment. Now, knowing all of this, we get to our text for today in Matthew 5, starting with verse 1. And it says this, Now, when Jesus saw these crowds of people, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's important to note that this action, Jesus going on the mountainside and having a sit, was understood by everybody back then as this natural posture that a teacher would take. And as a result, the disciples, this crowd, are going to assume the same posture of a student. Right? And I think it's important for us to read and listen to the text with that posture. Right? That we are hearing Jesus, the voice of God, the exact representation of God, teaching about the kingdom of God. And so should, we should listen as students. And the first thing he says is, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God which, as Greg taught last week, is absolutely contrary to what anyone would have thought that day. And truthfully, it's the same for us today. We would never think that. The word poor is a word no one wants as a descriptor of themselves. And the way we see people described as poor is not a positive thing, right? Poor in the Greek means lacking in anything. And the word spirit tied to it refers to the animating power to live and feel and move. So the description here is of anyone lacking the animating power to live and feel and move in any way. And this completely challenges the way we think because as humans, we never want to be poor in anything. In fact, we will do everything we can to make it out as if we have everything, and we tend to look down on those who are poor as a way to help us feel rich. But Jesus begins his teaching about what it's like living and being in the kingdom of God, and he says something completely opposite. He says those who are poor in spirit are blessed. Now, you're going to have to go back to listen to Greg's sermon to get all the goodness about this first teaching. But at the very least, you have to see that this teaching invites us and challenges us in how we see and treat ourselves, how we see and treat others, and how we see and relate to God. And at the very least, it begs us to ask some questions. Can I see myself and own my lacking and see it as a blessing? Can I see the poor and lacking in others and not look down on them or treat them less, but to see and love them as Christ does? And can I rest in the blessing that God does not love me or bless me for what I have or what I do, but in my honest owning of my need for God? That's his first teaching. Then Jesus comes to our words for today. And it's fitting with our worship this morning. And that is in verse 4 where it says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Which just reading this sentence sounds crazy, right? Blessed or happy or fortunate are those who mourn. And we all go, what? Which is exactly how the disciples and this crowd of followers would have reacted. And now this word mourn in the Greek is the word pentheo. 
and it means to grieve or to lament or to wail or sorrow. And again, this is something that we all like to avoid as much as possible, right? But what we see in Scripture is that from the very beginning of creation, when sin entered the world with Adam and Eve, our eyes and what we now see has changed. We went from seeing things as naked and unashamed to now we hide our nakedness. And if you look at Genesis 3, the text that describes this after the sin occurred in the garden, it says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as God, uh, the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. That word naked in the Hebrew literally means helpless. So when sin entered the world, the pattern of hiding our helplessness began, and it has never stopped. We don't want people to see us as lacking anything, so much so that we will go to any means to act as if we have everything under control, to hide rather than mourn. We would rather say, I'm fine, Rather, own, rather than own, I'm poor, or that I'm mourning. But what we see in Scripture is that mourning is all over the place. Mourning death and the loss of a loved one, or the loss of an inheritance. We see mourning over sin, or national tragedy. We see mourning of unfulfilled promises, and mourning the loss of one's presence just in their absence. And the fact is that we all have reasons to mourn, but our culture, just like that of Jesus' day, tells us to avoid doing that at all costs. But here's the problem. Jesus says you can't be comforted if you don't mourn. And now to be clear, this is not a command to all the followers of Christ to all of a sudden just start mourning. I'm not going to say, hey, count of three, Let's all mourn, right? That's not the idea. This is not a set of rules. This is a picture of what it looks like to live and be in the kingdom of God. It's an invitation to live life to the full, and the invitation is not to hide or lie about your poverty or your loss, but to own it, to mourn it, and in doing so, experience being blessed and comforted. Or to put it another way, Jesus says, if you want to experience being blessed and comforted in the kingdom of God, you have to allow yourself to mourn, to lament, to come out of hiding, to recognize your need, to ask for help, to feel, to process whenever that situation and circumstance comes its way. So then the question is, what does this look like? And we see mourning take all these crazy forms in the scriptures, including weeping, tears, wailing, lamenting, disfiguring, and grief. And we see postures like kneeling or reaching upward or beating one's chest or, or sitting in silence and fasting and bowing, none of which we're excited to do. But notice Jesus doesn't spend all this time here giving all these instructions and details about how and when and what it looks like with regards to mourning. He's simply teaching that if a situation comes up where mourning is the natural response, then don't avoid it. 
don't hide it. Don't say you're fine when you're not. Allow yourself to own it and experience the loss of whatever it is and know you will be comforted. Now this word, comforted in the Greek, is the word parakaleo. And parakaleo means to console or to encourage and strengthen, to exhort, instruct, teach, and to call to one's side. Now isn't this something we'd all like to have in the midst of our mourning? The scripture says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And you see, the lie that we've been told since the fall in the garden is that our lacking and our need and our helplessness and our mourning is unacceptable to God. That we should hide this at all costs. And sadly, if we're being honest, we've all pretty much believed this lie. So rather than mourn, we drink and we take drugs and we We take lots of painkillers and antidepressants and we make ourselves overly busy or we watch pornography or we watch out, uh, we we work out way more than we need to or we cut off relationships or, or we starve ourselves or we overeat. Some literally cut themselves, commit suicide, you name it, anything to avoid mourning whatever difficulty it is we are experiencing. And as a result, we never experience the comfort we need. And I want to be really clear, that list I just gave was designed to make you feel something. And I want you to remember, as a counselor and a pastor, I am not saying exercise is bad or to never take antidepressants. But what I'm saying is that anything you are doing to numb, hide, avoid, or disguise your mourning is problematic. And it's causing you to miss the very comfort you need and desire. And this is why most people are generally really bad at walking with those who are mourning. We see them at church, in a big room, or at a coffee shop full of people, and we know they're going through something. We say, hey, how are you doing? As if this is a really comforting place to talk. And if they do actually share what they're mourning, let alone start to cry, we freak out, right? We don't know what to do now. We don't know what to do or say, so we basically tell ourselves not to ask at all because it invites people to go to a space we're not even willing to go in our own story. And this, my friends, is not a picture of what it's like in the kingdom of God. William Barclay translates this beatitude like this. Blessed are those who have endured sorrow and have learned and been deepened by it. I remember as a grad student in my counseling psychology degree being taught that I'd only be able to go as deep with others as I was willing to go in my own story. And it's true. Another way of saying this is that I can't be comforted until I see and face my own situation and own my need for comforting. And if I can't mourn my own story and situation, how can I possibly help others to do the same? If I can't see my own story clearly... How can I see others? And this is really the world we live in. People who avoid and deny their own need for God and their need to mourn, who are incapable of seeing and helping others to own their need for God and their need to mourn. 
Which is why I think this idea of mourning is so tied to being poor in spirit and why they build off of each other. Because if you're poor in the spirit, that means we recognize, we own, and see our own situation accurately and honestly. We are poor. We are helpless. And it's this honest confession that should naturally drive us to a place of mourning. And it's at that very point where we can now experience the comfort that is the promise that Jesus gives us. Now, spiritually speaking, this is why I believe so many followers of Christ describe themselves feeling relationally disconnected to God. They live their day-to-day life relying on their self, doing everything they can to hide their poor state, avoiding mourning the things they've lost, unwilling to own their need for anything, let alone God. And so they don't experience what it's like to be in a real relationship with God. They don't experience what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of God, and they miss out on the promise of God's comfort. And this, my friends, is not compelling. This is not what people long for. The good news of Jesus is that we are invited to bring our open, honest, real, broken, absolutely poor state of being before God. And because of the cross, Jesus no longer counts our sins against us. He says, welcome into the kingdom. You don't have to hide. It's okay to mourn. I'm with you, and I will bless you and comfort you in the midst of it all. That's a picture of what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. And that is some good news. And when we've experienced this firsthand in our own story, we become transformed. We experience something that is not of the world, and it enables us then to be able to do the same with others. Romans 12, 15 says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Can you see how hard it is to mourn or weep with those who are weeping if we've never allowed ourselves to do the same? This is part of the transformation Jesus is inviting us into, and in being transformed, we are able to be Christ's ambassadors. We can share the good news because we've experienced and lived in this good news. Author Simon Tugwell, in his book, Reflections on the Beatitudes, says it this way, Blessed are those who mourn is paradoxically a more necessary message than rejoice in the Lord always, because there can be no true rejoicing until we have stopped running away from mourning. Stop running away from mourning. Remember, this is Jesus This is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who saves. He's the one teaching this. And by doing so, he's challenging people to rethink things, to consider, if you will, if God exists, then our sense of loss doesn't need to be suppressed, right? Because grief and loss are expressions of injustice, and they hit us at the core of our being, no matter how we can try to rationalize them and it's in those times where we are mourning that we cry out we release ourselves we mourn and in those moments we tend to point to God rather than away from him and Jesus says this is a good thing 
This is why the question, why did this happen, so often comes in our lips, in our midst of tragedy or loss. Which again raises another question. Who are you asking that question to? Because if God doesn't exist, there's no one to ask. Right? I believe we ask why because God does exist. And God hears our cry. And the Bible is packed with people, real people, with God about their circumstances, crying out, expressing a whole range of emotional responses. The writer of Psalm 22 cries out in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job, who loses everything, does not hold back his grief. He and the psalmist help us have words for our own experiences and even accept that there are times where we have no words. Romans 8.26 says, The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. It's not always pretty this morning. But God comes close to those who bring their mourning to him rather than suppress it. And it says God comforts and blesses those who mourn. I think Jesus is also saying that if God exists, we don't grieve and mourn alone. Because of the heart of the Christian faith, there is one who says he's always with us. One who stared grief and lost square in the face. Isaiah describes it this way. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. When Jesus entered and experienced the death of his close friend Lazarus, how did he respond? It describes this in John 11. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. He mourned. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. On the cross, Jesus took grief and loss to unfathomable depths, such that the forsakenness he endured caused him to cry out that very same question in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our God is not immune or indifferent to mourning and grief. He's experienced it at the deepest level possible. And it's that very same God that is with us in our grief and our mourning 2 Corinthians says it this way, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. We ourselves received from God. Now, I wish we had more time to discuss everything about this topic of mourning. Um, We do not have time to do that. Um, What I would like to do with what time we have left, though, is to share with you less kind of theological dialogue and more what I would call pastoral encouragement. These are my words for you. Um, As a pastor, counselor, trained, years of experience, 
walking with people. And I hope that you take these kind of encouragements, knowing many of you right in this room are going through things that are cause for mourning, and knowing that many of you know people who are going through things that are very much cause for mourning. My hope is that you take these encouragements about mourning to heart. So, why mourn? First off, I would say mourning means our hearts are tender and open to the Spirit. When we mourn, we become sensitive to the Holy Spirit's gentle and truthful and convicting heart and movement in our life. And it's often in these times where the Spirit reveals something of our role in the process of whatever it is that we're mourning. A broken relationship, a loss of job, a lack of resources, failing grades, addictions. These are not just things that we mourn, they are, but there are times where the Spirit often says in the midst of these, there's something that we played a part of in that, our own sin. And I want you to hear as a pastor, as a counselor, this is good news. Because it calls us back to the reality that we need to be in, and that is the understanding of our need for God. We cannot do this alone. And so today, I want to encourage you to be open to the Spirit at work in the midst of your mourning. That you'd be open to accepting the full story, whatever that is. Now, the second thing I would encourage you in with regards to mourning is that mourning is an invitation to truly be family with others in the way the church is designed to be. Having the capacity to mourn means our hearts are open, not just to the Spirit's own conviction to us, maybe our own sin, but also convicting us about the suffering in our friends and our family and in the world. And as a result, we're not willing to just look away and ignore someone else's pain or detach ourselves from hard things because we just want to enjoy kind of issue-free life, which is impossible, by the way. Instead, it calls us to listen and to believe their stories and to enter into the deep pain of others, standing with those who have been wrong and fighting for God's justice in places where it hasn't come yet. I believe our dinner church at Magnuson Park is doing this each and every week. Absolutely beautiful. Being willing to mourn with others is not an easy invitation, to say the least. But I can tell you from experience, it's an incredible deep privilege that we are called to. And as I've mourned with people this year, including some of you, over many things like suicide and death and injuries and homelessness and divorce and discrimination and health issues and addictions and job loss and more, I have felt absolutely honored to be able to join with these people in their pain. My life is deeper from hearing their stories of suffering and learning from their perseverance and hope and walking alongside of them. I'm truly blessed to call them friends and family and to be invited to stand with them and with you in the midst of your mourning. 
I want you to hear, friends, this is what the church is supposed to be like. This is our calling. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And our culture needs to see that. The third thing is that mourning keeps us rooted in the truth about God and the reality of the kingdom. And I'm going to say this one quickly, but it's important. Because when we mourn, what we are doing is declaring and acknowledging at a very soul level that something is not how it should be. And implicit in that is this declaration that God created the world to be different than it is and that God is at this very moment working through Christ in us through the Holy Spirit to restore what was broken by sin all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And so when we mourn, we are serving as a prophetic voice that points towards the world as it was meant to be and as it will be one day when Christ returns in all his glory. And I want you to hear, church, we need more prophetic voices in our community pointing to Christ. Last one, finally, with regards to mourning, is that our vulnerability in moments of mourning opens us up to receive God's grace, love, and compassion in deeper ways. And this, again, goes back to this idea of hiding. When Adam and Eve could see their own nakedness, their own helplessness, what did they do? They hid from God. But God invites them to come out of hiding. And friends, I need you to know that one of the best gifts you can give yourself is honest vulnerability before God. Because the grace and the love and the compassion that there is to be received will absolutely transform you. And what our church and what our world and what our community needs more of is not pretend perfect Christians. We need more real, authentic ones. And when you've really experienced this truth, you'll be able to share it with others in the most passionate and personal ways. And it will be an absolute gift to someone who's in the midst of mourning as well. We don't have more time. Um, so I'd like to invite our worship team and our prayer team to come forward. And as they do, I'd like to invite you to pull out that connection card um, on the inside of your bulletin because I would like to give you a couple questions for you to consider as a form of reflection and application. And I'm doing this because I know many of us are hurting. And again, I thank uh, Jessica even for her openness this morning. That was not a planned thing. I hope you feel invited into being honest about whatever it is you're mourning. With that, these questions, um, there's going to be a couple of them. All I'm asking is if you consider just answering one. They're kind of big questions. You're welcome to write them all down, use them to process later. But even if you'd be willing to answer one, that would be fantastic. And as you go, you could drop this card in one of the wood boxes. 
we really look through these, we pray through these, they help us understand how you are engaging with our teaching, and it would be super helpful in, in so many ways. So, question number one is a pretty easy one. On a scale of one to ten, how would you rate yourself at morning? Ten being you are a morning machine. <laughs> one, just like, don't even try it, right? Number two, would you say you're more prone to avoid mourning or that you're comfortable entering into times of mourning? One or the other. Which one do you feel more prone to do? And maybe a little explanation. Number three, this one's a little more difficult. Which is easiest and which is hardest for you to do? Three options. To mourn before God, to mourn your own story with others, or to mourn with others and their story. Which of those three is easiest for you to do? Which one is hardest? And the last one, we could all use these if you have one. Describe a time where you experienced God's blessing and comfort as you were in the midst of a time of mourning. So I would love for you to take a moment to respond, even if it's just to one of those and submit those in those wood boxes. The band here in just a sec is going to start playing instrumentally just to give you a, a few moments to wrestle with and ponder and, and maybe respond to one of these questions. Um, I want to make sure you know a prayer team is up here, and, and they are absolutely here to pray for you, whatever that is. Whatever it is you're dealing with your morning, or even if you want to uphold someone that you know is going through something, they would love to pray for you. So please take advantage of that. And know that as we've talked about a very personal topic that's hitting lots of different areas in our own stories, I hope you feel invited here at One Life Community Church to be honest about it, um, whatever it is you're going through. As I said, in a few minutes, Jessica is going to invite us to join in a song of response. Before we do, let me close us in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for this picture of the kingdom of God, this invitation. And as we are being honest, we recognize it goes against everything we've ever thought. And this isn't just about now. This goes all the way back to the garden. We are people that are prone to hide. And yet you know us more than anyone. You designed us. You know that there's something important about us having space to mourn. And you know the kind of comfort that is available to us when we do. So God, help us to be men and women who can be open and honest, who can share our stuff with you, who can mourn, we can weep, we can cry, we can bow, we can scream and yell, whatever it is we need to do to mourn before you. Thank you, God, that when we do so, you don't push us away. You don't tell us to go back to hiding. You welcome us in. You love us. You lavish your grace upon us. You bring comfort. You transform us so we can walk along with those who are doing the same. Be with us. Meet with us in whatever unique personal ways you need to do so as we wrestle with this, as we worship you, 
as we continue to be the community that is One Life Community Church. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. We pray in your name. Amen.